0: now spreading freedom across the nation this is three two one the buck sexton show
1: team buck Welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for joining. Great to have you as always. Quite a day in the news yesterday. We talked a bit about it to start off the show. More details uh, were coming in as I was on air about the assassination of the Russian ambassador. uh, There is a video of it. Uh, There are certainly still frame photos all over the Internet of it. Um, But that wasn't even the biggest piece of national security news, um, although... I guess you could say it's one of two very important national security stories. Uh, Later on in the day, and I was over at uh, Fox Business when this broke, uh, there was this attack in Germany, which you no doubt have heard a bit about, perhaps read a bit about, seen on TV. Um, A large truck uh, laden with steel cargo to sort of add to its weight and destructive power Uh, was used as a weapon of mass murder against a Christmas market in Berlin, in Germany. There's going to be a lot of talk now about how we need to do more in the war on terror, and I have to say that one of the frustrations that I have oftentimes with this is that that's usually not followed up with any particular specifics. And I'm not even sure... That people recognize, those, and I mean people, I mean those who talk about these things, recognize that discussing this uh, in the context of how we need to do more from a military perspective really does miss a lot of the point. And I think that in part a Trump administration is going to perhaps open up this whole situation to discussion in a way that would be impossible uh, otherwise. And that has to do with the sort of solutions. I, I should also... First, uh, bring you up to speed a bit on what's going on here. The manhunt is underway. It was reported, at least I saw it last night, reported that there, they had in custody an individual they believed was responsible for this. And it was a Pakistani um, refugee asylum seeker. And now they're saying doesn't look like that's correct. You've got 12 people killed in this attack. Dozens more very seriously wounded. As you can imagine, if you're wounded by a uh, a massive multi-ton truck driving 40 or 50 miles an hour, uh, the wounds are are grievous and, and severe. Uh, but the Germans are on the lookout. Uh, the German, More than 50 injured, according to the most recent report I'm seeing here. They're on the lookout for this individual. They are trying to find... Um, Someone they believe to be perhaps an ISIS. I I saw it reported as an ISIS gunman, even though I don't believe there was any actual uh, shooting involved here. Um, People are just sort of throwing around terms. All we know right now is that the initial arrestee doesn't seem to be the guilty party. And so the German authorities are on the lookout for the person who did this, who is still at large. You can assume, I would think, it's very likely that somebody who did this uh, would choose to go out fighting or would choose to attack again, uh, as opposed to trying to just lay low. I mean, this is not going to be something that anyone in Germany forgets, and I think that we can expect that there might be um, another attempt, uh, similar to what we've seen in other cases where there have been a a first terrorist act followed up by uh, other actions. What to do about all of this is a question that I think is worth us spending some time on. Because most of what you hear about this is absolutely and completely, uh, well, you've heard it before. And it's not going to be especially useful. It's not going to change the way we approach things. Uh, Whenever you see someone on TV and they say things like, we need to have stronger stronger counterterrorism Relationships with our allies. Uh, We need to use the intelligence more. We need more actionable intelligence. Uh, This is kind of like if you were trying to tell somebody how to get better grades in school and they just kept saying, well, you know, you need to study harder. It's just not that simple. The obvious big mistake here, and this is where the real debate's going to go, and I can sense it. I wonder if I'll have the chance to weigh in on some of them because, as many of you know, the Debates and discussions over assimilation and uh, over the root causes of this kind of jihadist rage are one of the topics that I most – well, I I enjoy perhaps is not the right way to put it. But I I like to roll up the sleeves and and get into this with people because I I hate the perceived wisdom here, the perceived conventional wisdom that there's something that the Europeans have done wrong that – has brought this upon them. Um, no, I think we can trace this back to a million uh, immigrants, almost all of them Muslim, coming in from countries that are war torn, coming in from countries that are just in a constant state of uh, oppression, that have many terrorist groups that operate, and perhaps more to the point, also have a lot of extremist ideology that influences the broader population. Right. Where hardline Islam is not some sort of uh, rarity, but is, in fact, widespread. So we look at this now. I I was at CNN yesterday, by the way. I mean, at Fox it was fascinating. This was a real uh, a real moment. I'm at Fox and we're supposed to talk about the Chinese seizing the drone. They've given back the drone. So that's sort of fallen out of the headlines. And this was just breaking in Germany, this truck attack. And I'm in a green room and there are other Fox analysts there and there are pe- producers and even one of the uh, gentlemen who's sort of uh, on the engineering side who hooks up your microphone and your earpiece before you go out there. And we're, we're all talking about it in the green room backstage in a sense. And as soon as we read about this, we go, OK, you got people killed, many wounded, Christmas market, huge truck, very similar M.O. to what we saw on Bast- Bastide. Day in Nice, Bastille Day, uh, in Nice uh, earlier in the summer. And everyone's immediately just saying, okay, so how many, what are the casualties? Do they have the suspect in custody? Uh, this is a terrorist attack. And, and of course it was, but right away there was a recognition that the chance that somehow a truck, think of all the trucks driving in Germany, the chance that a truck would just so happen a few days before Christmas to mow down lots of people in a Christmas market. Um, and I said we had seen I'd seen photos of this. I mean, it was a very large vehicle. Keep in mind, you know, it wasn't you know, this wasn't uh, somebody on a on a motorized scooter that hit a couple of people. I mean, this was clearly deliberate. And at Fox, the initial reaction from everyone, including the guys who don't even do this for you know aren't analysts, aren't anchors, just the people that are backstage helping get the show on the air. We're all sitting around talking about how it's terrorism. I then go over to CNN, where I'm also, right away, I mean, I go from one to the other, where I'm also booked to talk about uh, the Chinese drone. And of course, once again, news cycle changes, we're going to be talking about this truck attack. And I'm discussing with some of the people off air there, some of the folks in the sort of green, well, they don't really have a green room area for you to hang out with this particular show, but in the newsroom. And I'm saying, okay, so this is a terrorist attack, right? We we can talk about or we 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 can call it a likely terrorist attack if that's gonna make you feel better, but this is obviously an act of an act of terror, right? Nope. Not obvious to them. You know, a lot of people telling me that, you know, there's nothing official, we need to wait for the police report, we need to wait. I, I just sort of sit there and I think to myself, if we call it a likely terrorist attack and we're wrong, if this is somebody who uh, you know, ha- had a had a heart attack, and it's a it's a horrific tragedy. Then don't we just say, "Wow, it's a really it's a terrible tragedy," and the reporting on this initially was was wrong. And I guess we all would feel better because it wasn't a terrorist attack; it just was a terrible tragedy, and bad things can happen. That's the risk we run. Very interesting, which I would say is basically no risk, especially considering the probabilities here. Which I mentioned on air yesterday, and the probabilities are that it's it's infinitesimal infinitesimal that this was something that just sort of happened that this was accidental that it wasn't you know it wasn't an intentional act whatever very 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 unlikely, I would say. And yet that was the that seemed to be a sort of primary concern. And it just was a window into two different mentalities and the mental, and, and it's really two different sides. You'd think that a terrorist attack on a Christmas market in American newsrooms for the two most prominent cable news channels, you would have the same basic reactions from people. But you really don't. And of course, it also breaks down along partisan lines, too. Uh, as you look at this more, as you focus in on this, you can see that if you tend to be left, you tend to be Democrat, you want to be very slow in the designation of this as a terrorist attack. You want to make sure we don't jump to any conclusions. You know, they've been so programmed. And I always offer on the other side, why can't we just speak about this as normal people would without the programming, w- without the groupthink that has been Uh, Institute And the sort of news speak, to borrow from Orwell, that we are constantly, uh, constantly surrounded by on certain channels and in certain contexts. This is a terrorist attack. Very clearly from the beginning. Okay, but I just thought it was interesting to see that the differences between the initial reaction from people, including people that aren't on air, just just sort of in the newsroom that work there. The initial reaction at Fox is this is a terrorist attack. Do we have the guy in custody? Do we know how many are injured? Are there more attacks coming? You know, man up, let's go. And the initial reaction at CNN is, whoa, whoa, let's not jump to any conclusions here. We're not sure yet. We don't know. We got to wait. This could be an accident. We don't want to. And I'm just, I think today is probably when you see the start. Although they don't have the individual in custody yet. You probably see the start of the uh, Islamophobia narrative creeping creeping back into things. And give it a few days, and the Huffington Post and other sites will start writing stories about here in America, somebody said something mean to a woman wearing a hijab. So this, this is the real threat. This is what we really need to be on guard for. And I, I'm reminded of the uh, Yuri Bezmenov clip that I played for you yesterday, um, the KGB defector, where he says that active measures, one of the primary goals is to convince a country, a society, perhaps even a civilization— that it shouldn't defend itself anymore. And we're not quite there against the jihad. And I know that there are plenty of Democrats and people would point to Obama's usage of drones and uh, military actions, although pretty minimal military actions, taken against the Islamic State by uh, by our forces at the direction of the commander-in-chief. But there is ideologically this sort of self-hatred and and self-negation that occurs every time one of these things happens. Where in the European context, it's always they didn't do enough. And I do think it's worth pointing out that assuming this is a refugee or asylum seeker, and it may not be. It may be somebody that used, well, isn't that kind of the same thing? Somebody pretends to be an asylum seeker. They're capitalizing on this, capitalizing on Germany, kicking its doors open to a million people. Um, But when you look at this and you get a sense of, you know, what... The, the real risks are and and how this all happens, you say to yourself, okay, you you brought in a million people into Germany, primarily Muslim, uh, almost entirely muslim i'm mean, I'm sure there's a couple of maybe a couple of Christians slipped in there here or there, but these are uh people who are who are Muslims, and they meant a vast majority of them are not going to do anything that is violent, obviously we know that. But how do they assimilate? How do they fit into the broader society? And how much in the way of resources, time and effort should the German people already living there, which, by the way, includes a rather large Turkish population. And, you know, Germany already is a a multi-ethnic state in in that sense. It's not like it's not like you're bringing a million refugees into a country like Japan, which, by the way, just doesn't really take in non-Japanese, period. Uh, they just And everyone seems to be okay with that. I always find that fascinating. The Japanese, don't, they, they don't have to take in anybody, ever. I don't even mean refugees. I mean, you can't even immigrate there. Um, and anyway, the, uh, the questions about Islamophobia will be what are raised in this country because people are going to start to talk about this uh, in such a way that it upsets certain members of the chattering class. And the conversation in Europe is going to be about assimilation. Um, But it's not going to be that maybe there is a problem bringing in large numbers of people from a very disparate or uh, different, I should say, culture than what you have here in America, what you have in Europe. rather. It's not going to be that there is some onus, that there is some greater obligation to the refugees, to the asylum seekers uh, to just sort of work within the bounds of the new state and figure it out. You did have Merkel recently say this by the way, because she knows she's in trouble. She's up for election and uh, her Christian Democratic Union Party, uh, which still stands behind her on all this stuff, but they're like the only ones. Uh, they realize that she's created an enormous, an enormous uh, weakness for herself politically with this. And now she's telling other European countries, well, you know, you guys need to pitch in too and you need to take some of our refugees. Do you think those European countries are going to be clamoring to do that? Who wants to be the prime minister of name an EU country, who brings in a hundred thousand, ten thousand refugees, and one of them turns out to be an ISIS terrorist who kills fifty, a hundred, a uh, hundred of your citizens? That's uh, a tough call for people to make. Um, and in the backdrop of all of this, by the way, I just have to note. And we don't know if this person who's on the loose, this terrorist who's on the loose, is in fact an asylum seeker yet. Initially, the Pakistani that was in custody was an asylum seeker, but they don't think it's, it wasn't him. That guy must have had a rough 12 hours of questioning. Uh, but that people would attack a country that have, has taken them in, has given them safe haven, is a particularly, uh, a particularly odious kind of evil. Um, I, I really, I really look at it and think to myself, you know, what, what kind of a mindset is it that those who, you know, plucked you out of the sea, saved you from Assad's uh, murdering, raping gangs, you know, what what kind of a mind, what kind of a mind then says I'm I'm going to turn and kill as many people in this country as I can because they haven't done enough for me. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Buck Sexton show sponsor this half hour is super beets. beetroot juice used by Olympic athletes for its stamina boosting effects caused waves at the last Olympics clinical studies prove two glasses of beetroot juice per day could increase stamina by 16% but do you want to drink beetroot juice I got a better idea for you super Beets. super Beets give you the benefits of three whole beets in just one teaspoon and they have no beet taste and Super Beats is better than regular beets and beet juice because Super Beats are specially grown, non-GMO, and protected by a light drying process, which is also the secret to how good it tastes. I can tell you that every time I take Super Beats, I get a little boost of energy from it within 20 minutes, so you should definitely check it out. Call 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com. Get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order and is backed by a money-back guarantee. Also, receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free shipping on your entire order You'll love the results you feel with your first free canister guaranteed or your money back. 800-311-4367 teambuckbeats.com, 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com. I find it very interesting that uh, you look at say the New York Post for example and the way that they the way that they put in that uh Donald Trump. I mean other sites too. Donald Trump blames blames the christmas attack on, a christmas attack on islamist uh it, you know islamist terrorists and i got i got to think you know it's funny because some on the left view this sort of a thing and they say see see what a see what a buffoon trump is coming out and saying this before all the facts are in what they don't understand is that i would wager most americans I certainly put myself in this category are just happy when we can speak about this and and not feel like there's some concern about saying something that's not PC. It's going to upset people. Uh, yeah, it's pretty obviously a jihadist attack. And you know what? If it's not, if somehow this was the, the black swan event, the, the needle in the haystack, it came out of nowhere, it turns out it wasn't a jihadist attack, you know what? We, we can just correct it and say, oh, actually, this is what happened. But you'd think that with a terrorist still on the loose and with a mass casualty attack that just happened, the public right to know would supersede the whole politically correct nonsense, but it really doesn't for most people.
2: The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: This is the Buck Sexton Show.
1: Team, to give us the most up to date information on the attack on the Christmas market in Berlin and the manhunt that's underway, we're joined now by Greg Keeley. He's a former U.S. and Australian Navy officer in information warfare and Senior Advisor Representative Ed Royce, Chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee. He's currently the CEO of Swan Island Systems. Greg, great to have you.
3: Hey, Buck, good to be with you again.
1: Uh, so tell me, what is what is going on here with the German uh, Federal Special Forces Police? Uh, w- what's happening right now in Germany to get to the bottom of, of this attack?
3: Right, Buck, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of a bit up in the air right now, and I don't really think that the left hand knows what the right hand is doing in many respects although a couple of developments uh, just in in, in in the last uh, hour or so is German police have now um, confirmed, if you like, that they've arrested the wrong man over the Berlin terror attack or, or potentially have arrested the wrong man and that there is still uh, likely uh, an Islamist terrorist at large uh, who obviously needs to be considered uh, very, very dangerous. Um, Germany's senior detective in a, uh, a press conference just a minute ago, uh, warned Germans uh, to brace, and I quote, for significant terrorist attacks uh, in the next uh, uh, little while. So for, you know, the German police, as as you know, Buck, are very, very good, and they're they're very good at their job. Uh, For them to have stumbled like that, I find a little surprising. I'm I'm sure there's more to this than meets the eye, but... uh, All the words are right now is that there's a the the actual driver of that uh, 18-wheeler that uh, plowed into the into the market is at large, and uh, they don't know who he is because there's no video surveillance, is what I'm told.
1: And we're also, uh, my understanding is the latest is that the passenger in the vehicle was the original truck driver, and and essentially he was carjacked and, and murdered, it, it is believed, by the actual terrorist who drove the car into the crowded, uh, which, I mean, this would be sort of a, a continuation of the tactics in, in Nice, except in this case, no, no guns needed, no explosives, you don't even have to rent the truck and, and no. take it out in your own name, you just find somebody in a big truck, stab him or shoot right. him, take the truck and go.
3: Well, what's happened is what my uh, folks on the ground are telling me is that the uh, the truck was a uh, Polish registered uh, vehicle, uh, and you know it keeps getting referred to as a truck or a lorry. But this was an uh, a, what we call back in Australia a semi trailer, but you know an eighteen wheeler truck. Uh, it was a, po- a Polish or- origin. Uh, the, the gentleman driving the truck, who was entirely innocent, uh, was a Polish uh, you know contractor. He'd worked for this uh, this company for twenty plus years. It was a family company. Uh, he's effectively carjacked on the way into uh, Germany, uh, stuffed in the back uh, like a sack of potatoes, and uh, his truck is then used to carry out this uh, this terrorist attack. Um, you know, to to quote uh, my uh, guy on the inside, who's part of the Bundespolis or the b uh, he told me, and, and this is a direct quote as well as I wrote it down, that we had the wrong man, the situation is now different, the Muslim terrorist is still armed, and can commit further atrocities. Like that's out of the mouth of a, uh, one of the investigators on the ground.
1: And we don't know how much help he has. We don't know if there's a larger cell or if there are other individuals that are going to engage in follow-on attacks. Uh, clearly, with the Christmas right. holiday just a few days away, it seems that there's there's an elevated threat now. No, no matter what the police know, and I, I know they're taking precautions in Germany and Europe. They're taking precautions in this in this country. Uh, those precautions are uh, imperfect uh, and that's that's pretty obvious um I, I don't really know what can be done to stop somebody from taking a car or taking a truck and running it into a crowded area of full of people i mean this is low-tech terrorism that's very right. effective
3: of course and you know you, you know as well as anybody but you know you can't stop these attacks with more police and more concrete barriers you know i've been to this area in in uh, berlin many times in fact i'll be there again tomorrow uh you cannot stop an 18-wheeler or something of that nature uh, mowing into a crowd of people. I don't care if you've got the Olympic Games kind of security up around a uh, up around a venue, and particularly if the venue is open, uh, it's public, and it's uh, you know it, it's not inside. It's it, this is like having a a terrorist attack on the mall. You can have a few concrete concrete barriers, but if an 18-wheeler is barreling down the hill at 80 miles an hour, you're not going to stop it with a with a little concrete pole. Um, just on the, the person they have arrested, uh, my folks are telling me he's a uh, a, a refugee. He came in, uh, they're not sure whether he came in December of last year or February of this year through the, Balk- uh, the Balkans. Uh, they're naming him as Naveed Balooch. Uh, he's a 23-year-old uh, asylum seeker from Pakistan. Uh, so right now, he's denying uh, that he had any involvement. But of course, if, if I was a, <laughs> a terrorist, I'd deny the same thing. But... Um, obviously, they believe him enough to have reopened the manhunt for these guys. Um, one thing here in Europe, I'm in Geneva, Switzerland right now, is that the uh, security has, has really gone up around. Uh, it's, it's noticeable uh, as you walk uh, literally down the street. These Christmas markets are everywhere throughout Europe, uh, particularly in Germany, particularly in Austria and here in uh, Switzerland. Uh, security has obviously been hardened um, you know, you, uh, I'm being told that they've now deployed um, German police and uh, and the uh, um, uh, security forces with, you know, armoured vests and machine guns, which is unusual to see on the streets in in Germany. But, you know, I think, Buck, just like happened after, you know, Chattanooga or happened after uh, San Bernardino, you know, the, the Europeans and, and the Germans aren't cowed by this. You know, this is terrorism and just as... Chattanooga and these other terrorist attacks on American soil brought Americans together. I think I'm seeing that here in uh, here in Europe also uh,
1: you were in Zurich well, there was a shooting at a mosque there I mean there were three sort of international uh there was three incidents that received international attention that were security incidents and we'll talk about what happened in, in Turkey in just a second but what what happened in Zurich at this mosque? There was a gunman at a mosque and he, he shot a few people, right?
3: Right so uh, you know it's been a pretty dark day for uh, for Europe in the last 24 hours we've had four or potentially five we're just hearing some uh, uh, reports of a, an arrest of a terrorist in uh, in Brussels uh, literally just before we came on came on air um so so yeah hearing in Zurich um there was a shooting at an Islamic center in uh, downtown Zurich uh, the gunman uh, is dead. He apparently shot himself. Uh, he shot three people. He didn't kill anybody. Um, now we've just learned that um, the uh, gunman was a 24-year-old Swiss Garman, uh, Swiss of Ghanan descent. Um, the, the authorities are saying he has no apparent link to Islamic terrorism. But he was uh, he was Swiss of, of what descent? Of I, I didn't
1: hear that part yet.
3: Uh, Ghanan, so African.
1: Oh, Ghanan.
3: So. Yeah, uh, sorry, it's the, it's oh, the accent, but.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, pardon me, guys, yeah, people, I think, in, in the States, I think we say Ghanaian, but yeah, Ghanaian, okay, go ahead.
3: Ghanaian, right, sure. So uh, he's a Swiss Ghanaian, um, and the, the authorities are saying he has uh, no apparent link to uh, Islamic extremism, although... You know, we often hear uh, hear that um, uh, that song sung uh, after every terrorist attack, but they are saying the motives unclear. Of all the terrorist attacks, or of all the attacks, should I say, that have happened in Europe over the last, uh, or incidents that have happened in the last twenty four hours, that's the one I'm least, um, you know, least convinced is a uh, is an Islamic terrorist incident.
1: Now, what can you tell me about the uh, the latest on this assassination of the Russian ambassador in Ankara yesterday by? Uh, a Turkish police officer. Everybody has seen. If they open their computer, they go to any news site. Photos of this guy. He yelled that this is for Aleppo. You know, he did the usual sort of takbir, Beer, Allahu Akbar. Uh, mm-hmm. What do we What do we know? And and where is that? Where is that investigation going?
3: They've kind of clammed up. Uh, certainly with their their public uh, statements. I've spent a, a great deal of time in Turkey. Uh, the, the Turkish police are. Uh, or, or used to be pre this administration, or, or uh, were, were very uh, solid officers. Uh, obviously, uh, this this one has slipped through the, the cracks and has been radicalized. Um, uh, they've boosted uh, security around all the Russian uh, embassies. I tell you, the, the you know the, the the thing that worries me here with this with this assassination, and and while it's not Archduke Ferdinand, uh, you know, getting assassinated in Starievo, uh it's certainly. Uh, could be a could be a, a tipping point for Turkish-Russian relations, and there's a whole bunch of things that could trickle down from this. Everything from you know the Russians taking the initiative to to, to hack targets in Turkey, which has happened before. Um, you know this the you know the, this relationship is very fragile. You know the Turks shot down the uh, Russian bomber over Syria back in 2015. The embargo cost them nearly 800 million dollars. Uh, you know the, the 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 thing that worries me particularly here is that the uh, the Russian will, the Russians will make they'll play the Turkish card for one of a better uh, the Kurdish card, you know, and 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 really pour some arms into the Kurds and whilst the Kurds are, uh, have been uh, very solid supporters of the United States, not all of them are, and a lot of them uh, or, or there is some bleed across in the terrorist activity in in Turkey, and that could be almost lead itself to being a proxy war with the Turks.
1: There's also, of course, the possibility that uh, you could see crackdowns in both the Turkish and Russian context as a result of this, right? I mean, the, the, the Russians will look for, oh. Putin will look for an excuse to shut down dissent. The same thing is true of, of Erdogan. So there'll be political ramifications of this for sure. Uh, speaking of political ramifications, actually turning back for a second to what happened in Germany, uh, Angela Merkel is going to be what, up for re-election, uh, coming up here mm-hmm. and she's recently started to make some noises about how assimilation and uh, well multiculturalism has failed then assimilation should really be on the refugee or on the immigrant not on the state that accepts them uh, she's trying right. to turn that around a bit for uh, for many i think especially given what's happened in germany over the last 24 hours but even before then uh, with the influx of a million refugees it's far too little too late uh, where is the political conversation about immigrants heading uh, for Germany and for Europe overall?
3: Well, I think, um, but that's a, a terrific question. You know, I, 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 think you find that, um, Merkel, Angela Merkel has found herself a little bit isolated. Now that the, the right wing, uh, or the conservative party, uh, of her coalition or her grouping, uh, has, is, has moved away from her in the last, uh, you know, 12 months. And she's really isolated. Um, the problem here, I, I, I think, you're almost seeing a Trump-like effect uh, in Europe. Uh, it didn't quite come off in Austria, but I, I think uh, you know people are just getting sick and tired of 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 um, terrorist attacks, of not being able to go out of the front door at night. Uh, you know. It's time that the, 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 you, you, you've been here, Buck, many times. You, you go into uh, parts of France or parts of Germany or to a lesser extent here in Switzerland or Sweden or, or even if you go up into Hungary and those sort of places, there is significant um, Muslim ghettos all through those parts of Europe and they're not assimilated. It makes it's, it's creating a huge problem and that problem is now coming back to bite Angela Merkel and I think it'll you'll see this... Uh, Uh, ripple across Europe uh, more and more as these kind of atrocities continue to happen.
1: Greg Keeley is a former U.S. and Australian Navy officer. He is currently CEO of Swan Island Systems. Uh, Greg, uh, Twitter handle, anything you want to direct people to?
3: Uh, U.S. so K-E-E-L-S-U-S, U.S. is my Twitter handle.
1: Greg, great to have you. Thank you very much for the reporting. Good to talk to you. We'll have you back soon.
3: Thanks, Buck. If I hear anything in Berlin tomorrow, I'll give you a call.
1: Please do. Please do. All right. Cheers. Good to talk to you. 888-900-3393-TEAM. We'll be right back.
3: The Buck Sexton
0: Show. Discover more at TheBlaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show.
1: You know, I always have uh, two thoughts after these terrorist attacks happen, um, and, and neither of them are particularly comforting. Uh, and, and I'm somebody who, as you know, not just at the CIA CTC worked on this stuff. CTC is the Counterterrorism Center, but also the NYPD's Intelligence Division, which is its counterterrorism arm. There's also something called NYPD Counterterrorism Division, but they do more uh, sort of static security blast radius analysis, stuff like that. If you're looking for people that are running sources inside extremist networks, that's on the intelligence division side, which is what I was doing. So I've sort of seen it from the inside. Now I'm on the outside. I'm always, uh, in my mind, I always think, one, I'm surprised that this doesn't happen more often, although what we see are, are a pretty large number, all things considered, of disrupted plots. You know, somebody who's sending money to the Islamic State one week, you know, another week perhaps would be running around with a hatchet or driving a car into a crowd full of people. And those tend to pass without all that much notice. And also how little there is that we can do to prevent some of these attacks. Uh, the the usage of vehicles in this way, I've been wondering for a while why this hasn't happened. And there are other things too, other sort of soft targets and means of attacking them that I've always wondered why haven't the bad guys done that and you reach and you get to this point where you don't even really necessarily <clears throat> want to bring it up because you just feel like putting it out there is a is a bad idea um, but i don't have answers to either of those questions i don't have answers to why doesn't this happen more often because it would certainly seem like it would just given the, the tens of thousands who have joined the islamic state Uh, The fact that you've got a million refugees that have flooded into Germany and we know that the German secret police, uh, they know um, that there are what the BF, uh, the BFV uh, secret police, they're sort of FBI equivalent, um, that there are extremists, that there are terrorists who have infiltrated. And yet these seem to these attacks. Well, it depends on how you look at it, right? I mean, you look at Europe over the last 12 months and these attacks. To call them rare would seem to be incorrect, but also uh, I would think that there's the possibility that you could see uh, many more of them, and there could be follow-on attacks. And if that were to happen, y- you know, Europe would go to a very dark place very quickly. I mean, in France, they were already discussing some things. The politicians in France, after the attack at the Bataclan and across Paris with suicide bombers, including at the Stade de France, they were talking about some really scary stuff uh, from the perspective of what they're willing to do to stop the threat. All right. We're going to get into some politics in our two team. Stay with me.
0: The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton
1: Show. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. We are joined by Michael Goodwin. He's a New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. Latest up on the New York Post.com here is Buckle Up. Trump's era of disruption has only just begun. Michael, great to have you.
4: Ah, uh, good afternoon, Buck. Thank you.
1: Uh, first, you're telling people to buckle up. Let, let's just start with some of the folks that are going to have to get this out of their system, or I don't know if they're ever going to, but they should try. Wisconsin yesterday, after the electors voted for Trump, this was the scene, clip six. The votes are 10 votes, Donald J. Trump. Yes. <laughs> First, they're yelling shame, like from Game of Thrones. you got to love it. Uh, Michael, still in denial, still throwing tantrums. Uh, is it ever going to stop?
3: Well, look, uh,
4: I think largely um, it is up to Donald Trump. Um, if he performs as he promised, uh, if he delivers jobs, 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 if he delivers peace through strength abroad, uh, I think he will create momentum and i think he will build a pragmatic governing coalition now obviously the left the far left those looney tunes screaming shame and and holding all kinds of rallies and issuing death threats and intimidating the electors uh, they will never be satisfied they they don't care about the country they only care about themselves and they really are the most selfish people on the planet when you think of it uh, they have no respect for anybody's views and have no respect for the law, for for the Constitution. So he, he's not going to win them over. Uh, the question is, how many of them are there? How much attention do they get? Because if he succeeds, then I think they will shrink. Uh, but if he fails, then their ranks will grow and more and more people will be discontented. So I think he's... Uh, really started out very well. I think he's got a very strong cabinet, people of real great accomplishment uh, who are likely to break down a lot of the barriers within government that stand in the way of individual liberty and job creation uh, and common sense. So if he continues along this road and keeps his focus and doesn't chase rabbits down rabbit holes, I think he's got a chance to really minimize the, the Looney tune left.
1: Yeah, I mean, the lunatic left isn't going to change even if he does fantastic things for most of the country, right? There's going to be that fringe of 10 to 20 percent that thinks that Donald Trump is is Hitler-in-waiting no matter what he does, uh, even if he's yeah. just tweaking the tax code and creating more job growth and, and helping small businesses. It's going to be you know whiffs of fascism for the next four years. At least that's what we're going to hear from people. Uh, but it, it does seem like Trump so far, even to some conservatives who have had a lot of Misgivings, including some of my friends and colleagues who have been never Trump, they're seeing what he's doing. They're saying, oh, This so far seems pretty sober, seems pretty mature.
4: Look, I, I think, you know, someone said to me the other day, a, a very conservative person who has been quite supportive of Trump, um, didn't start out that way, but likes a lot said to me, His cabinet is more conservative. And I said, then Romney's would have been. He said, forget Romney. His is more conservative than George W. Bush's. And when you look at it, I mean, it's really true. So the never-Trumpers on the right, I think, don't have much of a leg to stand on. Now, look, I understand people don't like Trump. They don't like some of his personal habits, lifestyle, etc. But the election is over. All of those questions have been put to rest for now. And, and now we begin to judge him and... and uh, rank him, I think, as a president, as a president-elect and, and soon as a president. And I think we have to take him uh, by the same standard that we would judge others. And by the conservative standard, he's got a pretty conservative cabinet, I would say. Uh,
1: also, Michael Goodwin has a piece up on com. Time to face reality, Obama. Trump is going to be president. Uh, the, the left is still, obviously, as we just talked about, adjusting all right. to all of this. The Obama legacy, I don't think this is just a, a right wing talking point. I don't think this is just something that's getting the, the sort of conservative base excited or people are trying to get it excited with this. Obama's, what, Obamacare is certainly up for dismantling. A- any number of executive orders can be repealed right away. Uh, what, what do you think is going to happen to the Obama legacy with the Trump presidency?
4: Well, I would say that first, uh, Buck, the, the biggest Obama legacy is Trump himself. Uh, I, I, you know, I have written that the, the pendulum often swings very far, and let's face it, uh, George Bush begat Obama, and Obama, with his overreach and his insufferable arrogance and elitist dictates coming out of Washington, uh, begat Donald Trump. I mean, when you when you think back to all of the Republican candidates who started this race, why did Donald Trump? persevere? Why was he the one who was able to emerge? And Newt Gingrich gave, a, gave an excellent speech last week in Washington in which he said, you know, the others, many qualified senators, Republicans, they would come in and say, I'm from Washington, I can fix this. And Trump came in and said, didn't say anything, just kicked over the table. And that's what people wanted. They, they wanted relief. They wanted clear, certain relief. They wanted a street fighter. And they got one in Donald Trump. And so I think that if Trump looks radical by historic standards, I think you also have to trace that back to Obama. I mean, Obama was a very radical government by historic standards.
1: Yeah, I mean, the president came into office saying that he was going to fundamentally transform the country, and that was met with rapturous applause. People seemed to think that was a fantastic idea in the crowds that had gathered. And that was all OK. And, you know, now we keep hearing that Donald Trump is going to be, uh, the destruction of the world. There is, it seems to me, an entire industry popping up of Trump catastrophists, uh, and they're trying to outdo one another in the media with how horrific all of, all of this is going to be. Certainly based on the cabinet that he has, you have a lot of people with uh, tremendous backgrounds in government and experience and demonstrated records of success. Uh, do, you, do you think that there's going to be any chance for Trump to actually bring some Democrats on board? Uh, or, or are we going to sort of see a, just a solidified uh, opposition from the uh, other side of the aisle that doesn't break no matter what Trump does.
4: Well, look, I, I think in terms of rank and file voters, he clearly got a fair number of Democrats or or independent. Yeah, I, I mean,
1: I mean rep- representatives yeah. and politicians. But go well, ahead.
4: look, I, I, I mean, I think that what there are ten Democratic senators up for reelection in 2018 in states that Trump won. So I think they are the most likely. Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, I think were were two of the ones considered for the cabinet. Uh, Perhaps they can be brought on board for a couple of votes. Certainly, I think Manchin from West Virginia, a coal state, would be very uh, happy to see regulations lifted. Um, He's a clear Second Amendment guy himself. So I, I think that there are possibilities but I think there's going to be great pressure on those people to to not to break ranks with the Democratic Party, to stay in the Senate because those seats could easily be won by Republicans. And in fact, both of those states have Republican governors who would be appointing uh, senators in the meantime. So I think that that the, the Democratic establishment is going to push back on anybody going into the Trump administration, even even voting with him. But look, at the same time, if those people vote against Trump all the time and he is successful, then the, their seats are really endangered in 2018. So there's a practical political reality that I think will uh, cause some disruptions and defections in the Democratic ranks.
1: Also wanted to ask you, Michael, while well, we've got you here, we're speaking to Michael Goodwin. He's a New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. You can read his latest on NewYorkPost.com. Yesterday, a number of uh, huge national security stories. Uh, We've got the Christmas market attack in Berlin. Uh, You've got the assassination of the Russian ambassador in Ankara uh, by a Turkish gunman who's been caught on video, and everyone's seen exactly what happened there. Uh, What are some of the main takeaways that you have, given what's going on over there and around the world?
4: Well, look, I I think that uh, Turkey um, is such a linchpin of, of the world order that most people don't fully appreciate a the, the history of Turkey as a as a real crossroads of religion and cultures and Europe and Asia. I mean, I happened to have visited a few years ago, and I was frankly embarrassed by how little I knew about Turkey. Um, and it remains. I mean, it's a member of NATO, um, and yet it is really on the outside of so much of the West these days. I mean, Erdogan is a very strange character uh the coup gave him the license the attempted coup gave him the license to restrict all kinds of individ, individual freedoms more journalists are locked up in turkey than in china uh so it is it is a country on the brink of flipping and i i think that is a major concern when and they've got so many now syrian refugees there and it it, it is it is a dangerous uh powder keg uh, turkey and i would hate to see uh, it fall out of the Western orbit any further because I think it is an important bulwark against Islamic terrorism. Uh, in Germany, look, I think Merkel made a huge mistake in bringing in so many refugees, questions unasked, unvetted, uh, and I think she she confused sort of a humanitarian mission with her responsibility to secure her own country and protect her own people first. I mean, this is this is a classic example. Imagine if she had said Germany first, uh as Donald Trump has said America first. That would have been a clarifying principle uh to vet the refugees. Instead, she let a million in. I mean, Germany Germany's population is about 80 million. Letting a million refugees in in effective in, within months, there's no way they can be assimilated into the culture.
1: Michael Goodwin is a New York Post columnist. Read his latest on NewYorkPost.com, and he's also Fox News contributor. Michael, really appreciate you making the time today. Thank you for calling in.
4: Uh, my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Team, the phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. We will be right back.
0: Buck Sexton, Buck Sexton. dispensing the truth.
2: On the Blaze Radio Network. Blaze
1: Radio Network. Sponsor this half hour, silencershop.com. Team, Silencershop is simply the best place you can go with the best prices and the best service to get a silencer, to get a suppressor for your firearm. When you purchase a silencer from silencershop.com, you simply pick it up at a local dealer with no transfer fees and no shipping. Uh, Buying from silencershop.com is also just like buying local because your local dealer is setting the price and making the profit. Now you can get the best price and know you're supporting your local business. Silencer Shop offers the best selection of products from the top brands and tries to keep all the most popular models in stock. That helps you get what you want faster. So do check it out. Go to silencershop.com. Again, that is silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. Uh, we've got Jim in Minnesota Line. Jim from the Bucks Action Show. Welcome. Hey, i Buck. I'm all right. How are you? Fine, fine. Uh yeah, we called in Friday of course and tried to share
5: a story but I didn't have time as far as about a restaurant experience, bad restaurant experience I had. And uh this actually takes me back to nineteen eighty three. That's how good a memory I got.
1: <laughs> All right. Let it let we, we've got the time. Tell us about what happened.
5: Well, uh what happened was I went in to uh, get a burger at this uh one restaurant right before I went in the Navy and uh the you know, I told medium on the burger, or I figured it'd be cooked. And uh, they brought it back to me. It was like more like medium rare, very medium rare. And so I, I told them, I says, hey, you know, I can eat this. Uh, you know, please take it back and cook it, it's, you know. And uh, so they finally brought it back. And uh, this time they, you know, had cooked the burger, but the uh, bun underneath the burger was a grease sponge. So you say, I didn't want to eat it that way. And so finally the third try, they got it right.
1: But, uh, <laughs> okay, Jim, that's quite a story. Thanks for that. calling in, buddy. She'll tie. So they didn't cook his burger. Well, all right. I'm, I'm, I mean, I almost got like knocked out by a chandelier on a date that fell on a table next to us. That's a little more what I'm looking for here. Not like a place didn't meet your expectations with the burger the first time, but I appreciate Jim's effort. I do. Um, what am I gonna switch? <laughs> What's a good transition from that? Oh, remember we talked about uh, did didn't we play Kurt Eichenwald on the show? And he was saying, and he went back and forth Tucker Carlson. I think we did that on Friday because uh, this guy Kurt Eichenwald, who's one of these journalists who has some very sort of uh, lofty perches, contributing editor of Vanity Fair. He writes for Newsweek. He's one of you know, one of those print journalists of some uh, of some exceptional resume. And he had said without ever saying anything, um, uh, he had said without having any, you know, ever getting into it uh, beyond that, that uh, Trump was in a mental institution, in a mental hospital um, or something or was committed to a mental institution. And I have to say, I thought to myself, okay, um, that's quite a charge. He's going to have to back that up. And same thing with uh, with Tucker on Fox when they were going back and forth. Here is what Eichenwald said in response to uh, to the question. Do you have any evidence or any proof that Donald Trump was institutionalized? Play clip two.
5: done a
6: lot
7: of tough reporting uh, on Donald Trump. Your Twitter feed is filled with um, with comments about Donald Trump as as well. Uh, One of them, you you once said you believe Donald Trump was institutionalized. (laughs) You're laughing about that now. You're not back. Any regrets about that? It, it, there's a long story behind it. Um, when you go through the full fee lead up to that tweet, um, uh, there was a reporting purpose for that tweet going out, uh, which is more than you're going to want to hear about. I thought I was making fun of Fox News and the rest who were doing Hillary has seizures, Hillary has uh, multiple sclerosis, Hillary has Parkinson's, you know, let's go to Dr. Oz. And so I was writing a series of... Uh, jokes leading up to that with the intent of sending that tweet, which was a signal to a source to talk to me.
1: I, I, I don't even know what he's saying. I don't even know what his... Uh, what that means. A signal to a source to talk... Can you play like the last half of that again? Just because it's it's kind of gibberish. I mean, he's speaking words, but... It doesn't make any sense. So no, let's go
7: to Dr. Oz. And so I was writing a series of uh, jokes leading up to that with the intent of sending that tweet, which was a signal to a source to talk to me.
1: A signal to a source to talk to you. Wow. That's, so that's how you get away from having to have an actual... Uh, serious, real source for your information that you say that there's another source out there. You can't name him. Uh, You you can't name him. But there's another individual out there who is uh, able to, oh gosh, verify this? I I don't know. It's just crazy. This is another example of one of these journalists who has gotten so insane, so anti-Trump, that nothing really makes sense anymore, that they'll just sort of say anything, they'll say whatever they can. And uh, I have to say that to me is something we're going to continue to see, right? I mean, they get a. It's a really it's a Trump derangement syndrome. Uh, they're going to sacrifice their careers or their credibility, probably not their careers, because you can. That's that's too much, because as you can be as hateful and dishonest and nasty about Trump as you want. And that does not uh, in any way, shape or form exclude you from polite company. I mean, you can make up lies about Trump and people will, I mean, look, you know, people will sort of high five you. Uh, but I, I do think there's a level of crazy, though, in the lies that if you cross that line and you get really off the rails, people are going to start to say, well, you, you got some you got some problems. Um, you got some some real issues here. So I don't know what's going to happen with this, Mr. Eichenwald, uh, but that was the most bizarre thing. You know, dude, just say that you were wrong and and pull the tweet, but maybe he's worried he's actually going to get sued. Uh, Trump is litigious. We know that is a possibility. So he's he's going with this, though, digging the hole even deeper. He's going to continue to push and try to find ways to, yeah, uh, convince people that you can say that the president elect was institutionalized with no no evidence whatsoever or nothing. Uh, you know, what's next? Um, then again, I, they already they already have, I was going to say, they've already accused Trump of sexual assault and all kinds of things. So this is, I suppose, in a weird way, par for the course. 888-900-3393 on the phones. Uh, team, we've got a lot more to talk about, a lot more coming up. A bit into the uh, Trump cabinet, and we'll talk about Aleppo in hour three. Uh, stay with me. Light up those lines. I'll be right back.
2: The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Bill Clinton offers up all kinds of reasons for why Hillary lost the election. Here's the latest. Clip one, go.
4: I've never cast a vote I was prouder of. You know, I watched her work for two years. I watched her battle through that bogus email deal, be vindicated at the end when Secretary Powell came out. She fought through that. She fought through everything. And she prevailed against it all. But, you know, then at the end we had the Russians and the and the FBI deal, but she couldn't prevail against that. She did everything else, and still won by two point eight million.
1: points Gotta love it. David French joins us now. He's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. David, I'm. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, if we were to pull out a dictionary, prevailing usually means winning. So she prevailed against <laughs> it all until she didn't prevail.
6: Right. I mean, you know, this is it's it's interesting how quickly. Well, it shouldn't be interesting because he's a master politician, but how quickly um, Bill Clinton can spew out about every single Democratic talking point about the loss in less than 20 seconds. Um, it, she didn't actually lose as one of them because of the because of the popular vote, that if she did to the extent that she did lose, it was because of Russia, it was because of bogus emails, it was because of WikiLeaks, I mean, you, you name it. The, the, the avalanche of excuses being made, frankly, is, is getting more than a little bit tiresome.
1: Uh, and by the way, you wrote on NashReview.com about one of the, the favorite excuses of the left, and that's just old-fashioned, straight-up racism.
6: <laughs> yeah. Um, this has got to be you know the most irritating and the most destructive at the same time. It's irritating because it's incandescently stupid. So here you have a white, an older white man beating an older white woman, and the reason is racism. And when you dig into the numbers... You see that one of the reasons why the white man beat the white woman is because some voters who had voted for the first African American president switched to Trump. Um, so, uh, w- wait a minute did these guys, did these voters suddenly become racist between two thousand and eight and two thousand and sixteen, or two thousand and twelve and two thousand and sixteen, or did they find Hillary Clinton to be a bad candidate? Uh, you know, and and then when you begin to to dig a little bit deeper, you actually find that. Trump had a smaller percentage of the white vote than Mitt Romney did in 2012, but he had a larger percentage of the black vote and a larger percentage of the Hispanic vote than Romney did. And those are two of the things that helped push him over the top. But racism,
1: (laughs) it's it's really extraordinary. It is kind of amazing, really, given that the media, the two main reasons not to vote for Trump that they offered up were that he's a racist and that he's uh, a misogynist. Uh, that he did better than Romney did with minorities is, is seems to be a surprise to a lot of folks.
6: Yeah, uh, you know, absolutely, it, it it's a surprise to an awful lot of people. Unless you take a step back for a minute, and you realize that you know maybe this Democratic coalition of the ascendant that they were bragging about so much after '08 and in 2012, this demographic coalition that was going to hand them the White House now and forever wasn't so much a product of the Democratic Party as it was a product of Barack Obama. Maybe it's the case that to vote for the first African-American president in American history, with all that that means historically and all the excitement that it created, and then to reelect him, you're going to create a coalition that it won't be easy to create ever again, because you're never again going to have this incredible historical first. And then then when you replace Barack Obama on the ticket, or you – uh, succeed Barack Obama on the ticket with a a uh, ex- the second most disliked politician in the history of of likability polling. You're going to have to expect that maybe your turnout isn't going to be quite as awesome, awesome as it was in 08, for example.
1: You've also got a piece here uh, speaking about all things Trump and and the cabinet. Uh, Trump cabinet picks should fight their own bureaucracies. Before I get into the fighting their own bureaucracies, though. David everyone who listens to the show knows you've been you've been critical of Trump all, all along he's now the president or president-elect he's making some choices what do you think about the cabinet he's pulling together
6: you know overall I'm pleased with it um, I you know I think Scott Pruitt's a good choice to head the EPA uh, I think he's got the right idea of what the EPA's role is uh, that it's one to be bounded by law and not just to effectuate environmental uh, change wherever it can wherever it can imagine that it can I think that Jeff Sessions will be a good attorney general. I think he's a very good choice for that. I think uh, General Mattis is a brilliant choice for secretary of defense. I mean, um, he's one of the most revered officers in the entire military. And then to put him at the head of the the Pentagon, I think, is a brilliant choice. So I think overall, on balance, he's made good choices. Betsy DeVos is an outstanding choice for secretary of education. Um, so all of all of these choices I like very much. I'm not quite sure what Ben Carson knows about housing and urban development, <laughs> but we'll have to see. Uh, but overall, I think particularly on these really key cabinet choices, he's made good ones. I, I question, however, his choice for secretary of state I, uh, of the menu of options available to him in a climate in which the the um, relationship with Russia and Vladimir Putin and the the problems of, of Trump's expressed um, views towards Putin are now front and center in American in American political discourse. And then to nominate uh, as secretary of state, a guy who received an uh, order of friendship medal from Putin himself, is a little bit problematic. Um, now, I do think it's interesting that the people rallying to Tillerson's defense more than anyone else are uh, the are not only uh, Bush era. Foreign policy officials, but George W. Bush himself um, called Bob Corker to talk about Tillerson. So, um, given all that uh, Trump said about Bush's foreign policy in in the primary campaign in the general election, to now have the Bush foreign policy team mobilizing in support of Rex Tillerson is one of the stranger ironies of this entire process.
1: Returning, if we uh, if we can to the sort of central well to the the title and the central theme of your piece about. Trump's cabinet picks fighting their own bureaucracies. Uh, how, how do you think they should go about that? I mean, especially if you mentioned Pruitt at the EPA, and, and how much good can they really do, uh, given that they're going to be coming up against a lot of very entrenched civil servants who aren't yeah. going to want to be told that what they've been doing is no longer the way it's going to go?
6: Yeah, you know, you raise a great, a great point. And, and I think the, the short answer is it's extremely difficult to fight against the bureaucracy if you leave their power, fundamental power untouched. And what I mean by that is those bureaucrats, their actual job is to enforce regulations that the agencies have promulgated. And so long as those regulations remain on the books and untouched, it's very difficult for an agency head to come in and adjust enforcement priorities, for example, or argue that they should take this case and not that case, but instead, if you begin to actually dismantle the regulatory framework itself, to repeal regulations, then what you do is you strip the bureaucrats, no matter how progressive or activist they might be, of their power. And so I think that that's one of the things that a, uh, that, that, uh, Trump cabinet officials should be focused on, isn't so much sort of saying, okay, given the pre-existing regulatory superstructure, how can I adjust enforcement priorities, which they'll be fighting every tooth and nail every step of the way? How can they come in and say, what are key powers that I can strip from this agency where this agency has overstepped its lawful bounds? And and I can think of in multiple federal agencies off the top of my head, multiple areas in which they have overstepped their bounds lawfully, they have strayed from their mission truthfully, and... um need to be stripped of their powers and refocused on the basics.
0: And which, I mean, if you if had to pick one,
1: that, if you had to pick one, David, which of the federal regulatory agencies you think is the, is the biggest statist rogue elephant?
6: <laughs> I, you know, if I had to pick one, I will. I'll pick, can I cheat and pick two? Sure. We'll give you uh, two.
1: We're in a generous mood. Okay. today.
6: <laughs> Department of Education and EPA. Um, Department of Education has upended both higher education sec- and secondary education with a series of memoranda on Title IX that have created nightmares of enforcement, nightmarish loss of due process of of students on college campuses uh, have roiled and, and unsettled college campuses from coast to coast through a series of memoranda, literally memoranda that um, expanded the scope of the agency of the agency's work and the scope of its civil, quote unquote civil rights work way beyond the law. So. That's one. And then the EPA, of course. I mean, the EPA has taken the Clean Air Act and empowered by the Supreme Court of the United States to some extent has used that as just a sledgehammer on uh, the American energy industry in the name of climate change. And look, if if the American people want an activist federal government on climate change, then they can vote in legislators who pass laws to that effect. However, the EPA is in in waging war on on climate change, without any law and without any specific acts being passed by Congress empowering this, other than acts that have existed for decades that the EPA keeps steadily expanding through their scope through regulatory rulemaking, and the consequences on our economy are profound. I mean, you're talking about, for example, rules that are have such a negligible effect on. On carbon emissions that you know just a couple of days of the Chinese economy working at full at full capacity are enough to wipe out all of the gains the carbon gains from EPA rules and yet thousands of jobs are lost so uh, you know again the EPA is is fully in the grips of this climate change hysteria it's pushing the needle to the red so to speak on its ability to, on on its uh, rulemaking, and it needs to be reined in. And if Congress wants to do something about climate change, well then, by golly, Congress can pass a law. Let's not delegate all this to the bureaucrats.
1: Speaking of David French, who's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. You guys all know David. Uh, David, I want to ask you one more thing, and and just to get your take, uh, we've been talking a lot, obviously, today on the show about what happened in Berlin and also what happened in Ankara, but just focusing in on the Berlin terrorist attack uh, for a moment, People always offer up the what can we do and more security and more intelligence cooperation. Is there really much we can do or is this the new normal? I mean, this, you know, <sighs> I know you you actually know about this stuff is why. You know what I mean? A lot of people yeah. go on TV and talk about it. You actually did this in Iraq and you know the enemy. And uh, people ask me, what can we do? And I always say, well, it's complicated.
6: <laughs> <laughs> well, number one, there's no easy answer, uh, particularly now that. Um, ISIS has, in a way, revolutionized jihadist tactics. Uh, I say in a way because the Palestinians have already done this in their intifadas. Essentially, it's tell, uh, what ISIS did that is different from al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda was focused on the mega attack, hijack multiple airliners at the same time, blow up embassies. All of those things are really hard to pull off and and once you're aware that their plots are in motion, are easier to defend. But what ISIS did is said, well, we don't need to do that. Let's just do like what the Palestinians do in the West Bank. And that is whatever you have that can, you, you can be used to commit an act of jihad, use it. Car, kitchen knife, rifle, anything that you can find. And once that cat was out of the bag, and once we have – we and, and once ISIS had already been allowed to exist so long that it – that it helps spread that ideology from its safe havens in the Middle East. Um, it gets really, really tough uh, to to defeat terrorism. Uh, and by defeat, I mean eliminate it to the point where it's, it's meaningless in, in public life. It gets very, very difficult. Now, I will say this. If you do annihilate ISIS, if you do crush it, if you do leave the caliphate in ruins, you are going to have fewer people inspired because jihadists are inspired by winners, not losers, as a general rule. And so if you can crush ISIS, you will remove at least some of the inspiration, but unfortunately not all of it, because as I said, the cat is out of the bag and this sort of spontaneous jihadist syndrome, well, not really spontaneous because they're radicalized over a period of months and years, but this individual jihadist syndrome where they use whatever they have, wherever they are, to kill as many people as they can I'm afraid that might be a new normal at least for a while
3: yeah
1: I, I agree with you and uh, I'm also appreciative that I knew you would didn't just say we need more intelligence cooperation with our allies <laughs> so, every time somebody goes on tv and says that I want to say you know it's not because this these horrible things aren't happening because the Germans were like we're just not going to share that with somebody you know or or, or the French weren't going to share with the German anyway but but I digress yeah yeah,
6: I mean, <laughs> we, intelligence agencies have been trying really hard ever since 9-11 to stop these attacks. Yeah, th- this, this like is
1: prime directive number, number one. Th- this is, yeah, <laughs> this is all they, they've got literally, I mean, more people than I could even name, I mean, or think of in terms of the number off the top of my head in this country and abroad handling this. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people just trying to prevent terrorist attacks. But we've got to bounce for now. David French of National Review, everybody. Uh, David, what's your Twitter handle? At David A. French. There we go, at David A. French. David, thanks so much. Talk to you soon.
6: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, Guys, we'll be right back.
0: Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Is the book Sexton Chill.
1: This is how they react to Donald Trump winning in the Electoral College yesterday. Maybe he is getting tired of winning. He won the election. Now he's won the Electoral College. You know, he's winning, hashtag winning all over the place. But you heard how they reacted in Wisconsin with the yelling and the shame, shame. By the way, I'm so excited for the next season of Game of Thrones. Here's how they react in Texas. Play clip five. It's.
2: By the way, Texas now puts there we go. President Trump over the top.
1: See, there's some happy people that are happy that Trump won. Yay! Um, by the way, I, I I watched a. Oh, I'll talk about new shows later in the week. I've, I've been I've been doing some Netflix binging. I'm sort of. Um, I've got uh, not senioritis, but like vacationitis. Like I, it's time. I need a vacation. Oh, I'll be in for Rush. That's a good reminder on uh, December 30th and. January 5th and 6th, I'll be in for Rush Limbaugh, so mark that on your calendars. Um, Yeah, Uh, but I will be out from radio, from Blaze Radio, next week. This is our last week together. Until the new year, everybody, let's cherish it. We'll be right back. Buck Brief coming up.
0: You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. freedom across the nation this is
2: the buck sexton show you are entering the blaze threat ops center this is a secure space all outside comms are down prepared to receive the buck brief
1: We're joined now by Hassan Hassan. He is the co-author of the 2015 New York Times bestseller "ISIS: Inside the Army of Terror." He's also a resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. Uh, Hassan, thank you for calling.
8: Hi, thank you for uh, having me back on. Uh,
1: so, tell us the, the latest. I'm seeing here is that the Aleppo evacuation is is not just underway, but is nearing completion. Uh, what is the – give us just sort of a status update on, on Aleppo, both in the humanitarian and then from the uh, military side.
8: Well, so the evacuation from Aleppo, which uh, – or the eastern parts of Aleppo, this is an area that uh, the Syrian rebels controlled uh, since June 2012. So they – for nearly five years, uh, they had been in control of this uh, very important area, very symbolic uh, part of Aleppo and uh, recently with the support of the Russians and uh, Iranian back militias uh, the Assad regime finally uh, managed to expel the Syrian opposition from there and finally forced them to uh, evacuate or agree to uh, an evacuation plan and uh, that evacuation plan has been um, has been uh, you know has had some uh, setbacks But uh, it's in, like you said, uh, in its final stages.
1: Now, you wrote a piece in The Guardian, uh, Aleppo, Elegy for a Doomed City Whose History Spans Centuries, um, in which you you talk a bit about your time in the city, uh, pretty close to the the outbreak of of the civil war that's been grinding on on now for, for years. If you could just sort of speak to the importance of Aleppo uh, both for the the rebels, the anti-Assad resistance, but also just in the history of Syria a little bit, so people get a sense of why this is such a, uh, not just a humanitarian catastrophe, but a, but a psychological blow as well.
8: Absolutely. So in, uh, in the article uh, that I wrote, um, I, w- I wanted to kind of go beyond the Syrian conflict, uh, because I think, you know, many people start looking at the Aleppo fall and what it means to Syrian rebels and whether this is the end of the Syrian rebellion or the beginning of the end and so on and so forth. But uh, but the fall of Aleppo, the destruction uh, of the city, uh, has had also a deep psychological, profound psychological uh, impact th- throughout the region. People... Uh, when they saw that uh, these militias coming from outside and uh, there's a superpower also helping uh, the Assad regime destroy the city, they started to invoke uh, history. And uh, it was easy to uh, draw historical parallels, for example, between Aleppo and Mosul. These two cities historically uh, were linked uh, in in the minds of people. These uh, were controlled by a famous dynasty that... uh, uh, lay the, uh, the groundwork for al-Din to uh, conquer Jerusalem and, uh, and expel the Crusaders, and so on and so forth. So when they when they see that Aleppo, a uh, Sunni predominantly Sunni area, being destroyed, and then they see also Mosul being attacked, there are different conflicts. Obviously, there's a medieval uh, group uh, ruling um, Mosul since 2014, and the Americans are helping uh, through a carefully planned. Uh, or relatively, let's say, uh, plan to uh, expel and drive out, uh, drive out uh, ISIS uh, from Mosul. But people see different things. They see that there are two, two superpowers uh, helping in two conflicts against um, uh, areas that historically were uh, you know, seen as uh, seats of uh, Sunni uh, hegemony in the Middle East. And now these superpowers are enabling, in both cases, the hegemony of Iran, in the region. So uh, it's, it's really profound. And I, I think I wanted to kind of highlight this uh, the, the depth of the psychological wound that people throughout the region feel. And also to highlight how what's happening today in Aleppo and in Mosul, although I have to emphasize that Mosul is a different conflict and a different situation, but uh, I'm speaking from the perception of people on, uh, in the region. Uh, What's happened in these two towns will have uh, repercussions for many years uh, to come. People will feel that uh, there is a a different geopolitical uh, order that's been uh, put in place and enabled by two superpowers, even though they're not working together, but they're working towards something, uh, one outcome uh, that's taking place. And I... uh, You know, Aleppo historically was uh, more important than Damascus. Damascus is the capital of Syria, but uh, Aleppo was always more important historically, not because it was an important commercial hub uh, for the region stretching from uh, Syria to uh, Iraq, uh, what's now Syria and uh, and Iraq, but also because, um, you know, it was ruled by important symbolic, uh, symbolic dynasties uh, that had an impact uh throughout, throughout the islamic history and uh it also has uh, you know the, the areas that were destroyed in Aleppo uh included uh you know mosques uh, mosques uh, historic mosques ancient mosques uh, built by uh, revered revert people uh like uh, nor din zinki who ruled uh the area from Aleppo uh, from Mosul to Aleppo uh, to Damascus all the way to uh, egypt um so people saw the conflict in different ways, and I wanted to highlight that aspect.
1: Well, there's also the aspect that you highlight in your piece, which you uh, co-wrote, I believe, here, yes, with uh, with Michael Weiss, and we also know well on the show, that the fall of Correct. Aleppo is a huge gift to the Islamic State. I want you to try to walk us through that argument. Explain why that is.
8: Yeah, absolutely. So in, um, in May uh, this year, uh, Abu Mohammed al-Adnani, the, that's the, uh, you know, the former spokesperson of ISIS, uh, who's well known for calling on attacks against the West and so on and so forth. Um, and, and for, you know, uh, just, just because it happened, uh, you know, yesterday, the kind of the use of trucks uh, uh, last year to, to attack civilians and so on and so forth. So this uh, person came out in May to highlight a, a growing criticism in the Middle East against ISIS which is that um, ISIS only brings devastation and destruction to Sunni areas. Uh, so they say, look, ISIS is not actually uh, helping us in any way. They control an area. Iranian-backed militias come to this area, destroy it, and then take it. So at the end, only uh, like Sunnis are only losing, uh, and their towns are being destroyed. And, and he came out, uh, and he felt compelled to come out and say, uh, look uh, there there 's no precedent in Islamic history uh, that makes us think that we can withdraw from an area only because it 's going to be destroyed and there 's no precedent that uh, we can do that to make sure that people in these towns uh, continue to support us and they, uh, he he says uh, so basically that, that he he felt compelled to do it uh, two months uh, sorry a few months later when Aleppo is being destroyed. So remember, ISIS doesn't exist in Aleppo. ISIS doesn't control any area inside Aleppo. And yet, Aleppo has been destroyed in the same way that uh, other areas like the Crete and Ramadi and so on and so forth were destroyed. So people started to question their criticism Mm -hmm. towards ISIS, that, you know, Sunni areas have been destroyed, it doesn't matter with or without ISIS. And then uh, ISIS came and retook uh, recaptured Palmyra uh, last week. Uh, and that was, uh, that was a way for ISIS to really come back again after a series of losses and, and, and kind of a, a, a criticism mounting against ISIS because it only uh, brought destruction. And people say, you know what? It doesn't matter. It, it, seems, it seems it doesn't matter whether ISIS is in control of the town or not. There's something happening in both Iraq and Syria and we are under attack. Remember, Sunnis, throughout history, they were the dominant, they are the majority. Uh, In uh, in Islam, they are probably uh, 80 to uh, 85% of uh, Muslims, uh, you know, uh, across the world. So, uh, and in the region, they are are majority. So they suddenly felt uh, they have this minority complex, that they feel under attack. There are no countries that uh, stand up uh, to defend them, stand by them, Uh, and there's Iran. Uh, you know, active in the region and supporting uh, uh, and destroying, uh, supporting uh, their opponents and destroying uh, their countries. So uh, uh, also me, uh, you know, I and Michael wanted to highlight uh, the resurgence of ISIS uh, as a, as a group that is still relevant and is still ben- uh, and can benefit from this. So I think the destroy of Aleppo, the destruction of Aleppo was a gift uh, to ISIS for sure.
1: What do you think the incoming administration should do about this enormous mess that is Syria and and the spillover into the region, Iraq and elsewhere, and the effect it's had on Turkey, the massive dislocations of, of Syrians inside the country and, of course, the refugee crisis that it's caused outside the country? Uh, half a million people are dead. You've got whole cities that are being turned to rubble. The incoming administration should do what? I mean, it would seem to be almost impossible – to do worse on this policy than the current administration has over its years, uh, what should the new administration do? What should the approach be
8: exactly I think that's a, that's a good point because uh you know what i I am a bit hopeful that the next administration would be uh, better not because the you know the current administration has done so badly that nobody can uh, do worse than that, but also because I think the current the next administration from what I can see. From the, some of the appointments and uh, some of the nominations uh, that we have heard so far, about uh, they understand this uh, challenge uh, uh, that Iran poses in the region. So if they want to work with Russia. That's fine. Many Syrians want to work with Russia, but they want to define what, like what working with the Russians means. Uh, working with the Russians to uh, protect civilians and make sure that Syria is stable. I think many people uh, would welcome that. Even. Uh, some of the uh, uh, backers of the Syrian opposition in the region would welcome uh, a Russian uh, constructive role in, in Syria as opposed to an Iranian role uh, in, in the region. And some people see even Turkey, for example, they see a difference between uh, how Iran uh, what Iran is doing in Syria and Iraq and what Russia uh, ideally, would want to do uh, in Syria and Iraq. They're they're different, uh, or in Syria at least, uh, uh, in the Russian case. And uh, and I think there's there's a chance if, if the next administration can separate this and and, and work to emphasize that they want to salvage what's left of Syria uh, without uh, the hegemonic hegemonic uh, kind of control by Iran. I think there's a big chance there. And uh, one of the one of the ideas we presented, I and Michael, is that we look in Syria as, uh, as a as a as a, a fractured country already. So uh, instead of looking Syria, looking at Syria in a holistic uh, way of saying, for example, we want to topple Bashar assad or not, or we want to create safe zones or not. I think these are general uh, ideas that don't don't uh, that ignore uh, what's happening on the ground. For example, well, uh, the way we look at it, just to give you like more details, if we look at Syria today, uh, the regime controls 40 percent of the country uh, territory, territorially speaking, not uh, population. And 60 percent uh, of the country, what's left uh, uh, the, the kind of the 60 percent of the country that is left uh, is really uh, are, is, is the areas that uh, the Americans already have sphere of influence. These are areas where the Americans fought ISIS and cleared ISIS uh, from these areas, or they are in the process of clearing ISIS uh, from these areas. So the question would be whether the next administration would say to the, Amer- to the Russians and the Iranians, okay, so we've done our job, we cleared-, we cleared the areas from ISIS, and here we go, you can take it. I don't think the next administration will do that. I think the next administration will, uh, will, will say that we need to continue to control these areas in one way or, or another to make sure that ISIS doesn't come back. And based on that hope, I think there's a chance that at least 60 percent of Syria will be salvaged. So
1: cutting the country up into pieces and controlling I mean, essentially creating a safe zone, you, adv- you think that's a good idea?
8: Uh, yes, but it, it's not, uh, I mean, area, these areas are already safe zones. So the Americans will would would not have, like, they won't have to do uh, more than what they are already doing. So remember, the areas where the Americans have fought ISIS, uh, the, the, you know, uh, these areas already uh, already have some American presence. Whether, uh, you know, they have special forces in some areas. They even uh, installed uh, a base uh, in northern Syria. And what we are asking for is that to turn this presence, which seems to be ad hoc or temporary, into something more uh, strategic to secure these areas. And even, uh, it's not a partition plan, but it's basically uh, trying to use these safe havens or de facto safe havens uh, and, and turn them into something that works and then would be coalesced into whatever Syrians uh, decide to do in the future. So it's not it's not a, an occupation uh, or kind of pro- proposal uh, for the Americans to occupy uh, Syria. It's not a proposal for the Americans to send troops. It's not a proposal for the Americans to even dedicate more resources. What they need to do is to work with Turkey and with regional countries and say, you know what, this 60% of Syria can turn into a, 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 you know, a good story. The alternative is Bashar Assad decides after he takes over all of northwestern Syria, which is Aleppo and a neighboring uh, province called Idlib, um, uh, to say, w- you know what, we're going to go to Raqqa, and we're going to go to Deir and we'll go to eastern Syria, where ISIS, uh, uh, you know, worked. that's after the Americans clear ISIS, uh, uh, clear that area from ISIS. And they say, you know what, we now control Syria. I don't, I don't think that will um, will help Syria. That's, that's only going to be... Uh, Bringing us back to uh, square one where ISIS starts to come back, where the Syrian rebels start to revolt, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, I think the best case scenario is for the Americans to say, What? To say, uh, you know what, this is uh, the area, and we can decide how uh, these areas will be run uh, in the future.
1: Hassan Hassan is co author of ISIS Inside the Army of Terror. You should uh, read his latest. He's got a piece off. He co author with Michael Weiss on the thedailybeast.com and uh, follow him on Twitter. Hassan, great to have you, sir. Really appreciate your time today.
8: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks. Uh, Let's do a buck brief close.
2: You are leaving a secure space. Cell phones may be turned on. Disavow all knowledge of this meeting. Remember to protect sources and methods. Maintain good OPSEC at all times.
1: 888-900-3393. Phones open. We'll be right back.
0: This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the Truth. This is Buck Sexton
2: on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: See, I thought it was interesting. We just had an author or somebody who writes for The Daily Beast. He's author of a a book, Isis Inside the Army of Terror, but he co-writes with our friend Michael Weiss, The Daily Beast sometimes. Another piece from The Beast, uh, which is left-wing, but does some pretty good stuff uh, sometimes. They were talking about how 1984 became this huge sensation and how it sold well and then it sold really well and all that. But more interesting to me, is in their piece there is a YouGov there or a, yeah Ugov poll about the ten most important ten most valuable books to humanity was the question. Number one was the Bible, which is unsurprising. Uh, number two was The Origin of Species. Number three, A Brief History of Time. Number four, Relativity: Relativity, the Special and General Theory. Five, 1984 by or- Orwell. Six, uh, Principia, uh, Principia Mathematica. Uh, seven to Kill a Mockingbird, eight the Koran, nine the Wealth of Nations, and ten the Double Helix. Other than the Bible, the Koran, Nineteen Eighty Four, and To Kill a Mockingbird, I would wager that less than one percent of Americans have read more than one of those one of those books. The Origin of Species, A Brief History of Time, Relativity, Relativity The Special and General Theory, uh, Principia Mathematica. Uh, The Wealth of Nations. Everybody owns The Wealth of Nations. And look, I'm not gonna lie to you, I bought it when I was like in college and still have it on my shelf. Nobody's read The Wealth of Nations. I mean, they tell you they have, but I mean, they read like the first 20 pages and they were like, meh. I'm gonna read some, I'm gonna watch some Netflix.
2: The Bug Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. Show on
1: the Blaze Radio Network. In yeah, the middle of the light team, I think if I could sort of just come back as something other than uh, a movie star or a rock star, but you'd really want to be a rock star that hits your peak in like the eight, like late eighties, early nineties. I feel like that was the greatest time to be a, a rock star. Um, so you know, when CDs really were at their peak, and you know you have MTV and all that stuff going on. Now it's a little different. Uh, music is more sort of disag- – the music industry is more disaggregated. A- anyway, um, <laughs> forget about that for a second. I also think it would be fun to come back as a professor of uh, classics. Um, that would be – but I'd want to be a professor of classics who consults on historical projects. One of, my th- one of the things that's really annoyed me uh, for a long time about movies that are based on a historical event is it's one thing when they, for dramatic effect, you know, yeah, they got to throw in probably some beautiful ladies and, you know, that didn't really... You know, I, I like I can handle in Braveheart the French... Prin- I mean, the princess from France who, you know, that didn't happen, but okay. You know what I mean? I can sort of go with that. Um, but when they can tell the truth of the story and they choose not to, and the actual story is more interesting than what they come up with, I get very annoyed. Um, so I... Recently, you know, I watched. Uh, I finished watching Spartacus, and these are things that I watch. And as I said, my brothers, uh, particularly my older brother, makes fun of me and says that if if there's what is it, uh, wine, uh, wine wenches, swords, and beards, I'm in. That's what, he, and he's right. Anything that has that, uh, movie, TV show, wine wenches, dudes with swords, and 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 lots of beards, uh, I'm probably going to be a fan of the show, um, and. There is, uh, for me at least, um, uh, you know, looking at this, I have to say, I, I thought that, you know, Spartacus, there was a little too much blood. There's a little too much of of that stuff. But uh, some of the overall storyline actually tracked with the slave revolt against the Roman Empire. And they actually used, you know, the Marcus Crassus puts it down and uh, the names of the leaders of the revolt, you know, Gatticus and, um, uh, there's a whole, uh, now of course I'm forgetting, so the, uh, Gatticus and Crixus and, uh, and others are actually the names of some of the slave revolt leaders. And they, so there is some, and, uh, Glaba, who was the, uh, uh, initial consul who was assigned to take them down. So while the show is re- like the actual fighting is ridiculous and, you know, just, as a, as a bit of, Advice to those of you who may find themselves in an actual uh, fight with a, a Roman uh, Roman testudo formation or something, y- you don't really want to do the running, jumping, two leg drop kick when you're when you have armor and a sword in your hand, um, because people are going to stab you when you're on the ground and you're going to die. A lot of running drop kicks in this, like it's the WWF. I just I'm like, where did they get this? I that's one of the worst. Like, first of all, if you can't get out of the way of a two-legged dropkick, you got problems. Uh, It's I mean, what move is easier to see coming than somebody running and launching himself in the air and then trying to mule kick? Anyway, it's crazy. But the overall storyline kind of tracks. I also watched, and I haven't really done a a deep dive myself into it. I'm probably going to go into the Strand bookstore over the weekend and pick up something on uh, uh, the Medici family. Um, But there's Medici Masters of Florence, a Netflix series. That has the guy who plays the King of the North, the initial King of the North. I forget his name. Um, he's one of the Starks, uh, the initial King of the North, and, and he gets killed at the Red Wedding. He plays uh, Cosimo de' Medici. And it's good. It's a little slow, I think, to get going as a series, but it's pretty good. But I want to see how much of the history they stay true to, because I feel like more and more now people are realizing that, you know, if you're going to watch a historic piece, at least the overall major events should be historically accurate, right? There's no reason not to. Yeah, you can change, you make up the dialogue and the sort of internal personal squabbles, and there's going to be little action sequences here and there that didn't really happen. Fine. But overall, you know, the major battles and things like that, you'd like them to sort of track with reality. And anyway, I've always thought it'd be fun to be a professor of the classics who got to consult on a movie like Troy or. Or, or you know maybe if I was uh, specializing in Renaissance Europe to consult on this series, uh, but the Medici is very well. I will say the production value is very good. I can recommend it from that. Uh, from that end, uh, I can also tell you um, that there's a lot of there's a lot of nakedness. There's a lot of there's a lot of boobies. So for those of you that you know, not for this is not for the under eighteen crowd and. Don't watch this woman. Don't try to over the holiday. Don't be like, oh, you know, come here, kids. Like, let's throw on the Medici show. Like, no, 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 no. It's there's too much, too much going on there. Um, But another good history. And and I like these things because I I feel like you can always also in your head cross reference it with what you think the period would have looked like. And, you know, and and I I like to check on the stuff. Anyway, it's a it's a personal thing that you know I I do in my spare time because I'm obviously really exciting and, and love the party. But I was thinking about all this also because I read this piece. This is sort of a – that was a long diversion. And it's a piece put out by a woman. I don't know her, so this is not a personal slam. I don't, I don't do unnecessary personal slams. I really try not to do personal slams, period. I always love it when I go to CNN and I get personally slammed when we're talking about a policy issue. And I'm like, can we not why, – why, why am I being like attacked all of a sudden? Like, you're not being attacked. We're just saying you're terrible. It's like, wait, I, I think saying I'm terrible is an attack. or, or I think saying I'm, I'm anti-Muslim and a racist is an attack. I think. You know, I don't have a Ph.D., but uh, I do know some stuff being a Ph.D. So this woman, Donna Zuckerberg, writing for a publication that I'd never heard of. I- 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 Edelon, I'd never heard of it before. I'm not sure it's big, but it got a little bit of attention from some of the conservative intelligentsia. The headline of it was under a bad emperor. Uh, oh, sorry. How to be a good classicist under a bad emperor. And, you know, this woman has a Ph.D. from Princeton. She teaches at Stanford University. So, I mean, we're talking very fancy places. It doesn't really get much fancier than Princeton Stanford. I mean, there's Harvard and there's Yale, but, you know, Princeton and Stanford are right up there. Um, I knew there was a problem with this, though, because not only when you sort of get into a a little bit of her piece, um, you can see that she's sort of a far left um, ideologue and has adopted a lot of this sort of progressive orthodoxy as uh, unalterable truth. She also has a book coming out. Not, and I shouldn't even say it because like, I feel like I'm giving her free advertising on the show, but this will tell you a lot. Not All Dead White Men is the title of it. A Study of the Reception of Classics uh, is due to be re- released by Harvard University Press uh, coming up next fall. Not All Dead White Men, A Study of the Classics. yeah. I'm gonna say that, like most of the people in ancient Greece that had a really big impact on Greek philosophy and and literature and art I'm gonna say most of them were white men. I'm gonna put that out there you know that that's it's likely that in ancient Greece that was true, just saying um, but she has a different point of view, but that's not even really what I wanted to get into here, as you can see, I'm bouncing around with my thoughts on this one uh she talks about. Well, let me read you a bit of of this piece. A specter is haunting the internet, the specter of the alt-right. Ah, somebody who's a PhD in the classics talking about the alt-right. This should be interesting. The forces of white supremacy and toxic masculinity, fueled by a sense of entitlement dwarfed only by their inflated estimation of their own intelligence, have entered into an unholy alliance to remove feminism, political correctness, and multiculturalism from America. Now... Stop there for a second. See, this is what I was trying to say to you before. And I know I'm on with some of you, some of you are a little like, "What?" Huh? and I, with a lot of folks, you're on sort of dangerous ground the moment you say, well, hold on a second. Is this guy Spencer and these racist buffoons, are they the alt right or is there something else that's a part of the alt right? Because the alt right used to refer to something else. It's now been co opted, it seems, by sort of neo Nazi white nationalists, but that's not how it was, even by the New York Times, referred to a while ago. And uh, removing feminism, political correctness, and multiculturalism from America—like I-, I-, I want that on my resume. So I don't want that to be something that only the alt-right is doing, or that the alt-right has some sort of a claim to beyond me. Like, I just just put this out there. Okay, but back to her piece. So she writes this like oh, these this, these hateful words, and it's so terrible that when I get rid of feminism, political correctness, and multiculturalism, I, I think those things should be eradicated immediately. All right. On November eighth, twenty sixteen, after enduring years of mockery, months of being told that they are the they are the arc of the moral universe uh, would never let it win, the alt right scored its first significant political victory: the election of Donald Trump to the highest office, of the most powerful country in the world. Uh, last week, this is this woman writing this uh, PhD from uh, from Princeton, who teaches. Remember, she teaches the classics: ancient Greece, ancient Rome, yada yada. Um, so. She, she writes here, last week I gave two lectures about my research on classics and the manosphere. Now, first of all, anyone who uses the manosphere in any, with any level of seriousness is worthy of mockery, period. Right? Anyone who talks about the manosphere, we need to make fun of, full stop, just the way it is. Um, and which is great. So she uses the term manosphere. And then she sort of goes on to talk about how we need to fight back against the manosphering of the classics. And she's worried that the alt-right, when it talks about Western civilization, is hijacking the real sort of study of Western civilization. And she wants to push back against this. But I wanted to also give you some of it because I'm I'm sure this is representative now because all these academics, they all parrot each other. And they all want to stay within certain guidelines that they're sort of creating as they go, but it's, you know, they are in a constant evolution of the progressive echo chamber, right? It's just, they're all trying to stay within it. And yeah, it's sort of shifting over time, but they're trying to shift together. You know, think of it like all the kids chasing one soccer ball around, right? They're all clumping together. That's how in different uh, humanities, in different areas of the humanities with, with academics who, this is what they do. They teach at these universities and, They have these wonderful jobs where you have very little pressure and very little – once you get tenure, before then it's like misery and you're underpaid and it's terrible. But once you get tenure, you're in great shape Um, and you're generally speaking – especially at these elite institutions, really overpaid – But she says, uh, this is what to do about the manosphering of the classics that will occur under a Trump administration, right? So we're we're pulling a bunch of threads together here. We're pulling Trump's victory together with the manosphering of the classics and the alt-right. And, you know, this is all a big mishmash, but it's kind of fun to, to get into it. She writes, when you hear someone, be they a student, a colleague or an amateur, say they are interested in classics because of the Greek miracle or because classics is, quote, the foundation of Western civilization and culture, Challenge that viewpoint respectfully but forcefully. Engage them on their assumed definitions of, quote, foundation, quote, Western, quote, civilization, and quote, culture. Point out that such ideas are a slippery slope to white supremacy. Seek better reasons for studying classics. Uh, so this is a Ph.D. from Princeton who teaches at Stanford writing publicly about how. Somebody who says they want to study the classics, which I did as a, you know, as a sort of a, a lay person over the course of my studies. I am not an expert in the classics by any means, nor would I ever pretend to be. But it was sort of a, a foundation or at least a backdrop to much of my study and much of what I've been interested in since. But if you're interested in that because the classics are, quote, the foundation of Western civilization and culture, you should be challenged on literally every word in that sentence. You should be challenged on what is culture, on what is civilization, on what is Western. This is her advice to people. um, Because not only is that super annoying, but also to add on top of that, she believes that to think in those terms is a, quote, slippery slope to white supremacy. This is madness. This uh, This is madness. And as Leonidas says... This is Sparta. We'll be right back. Go to Rex Sexton.
2: The Blaze Radio Network.
0: listening to the Buck Sexton show only on the blaze radio network.
1: Hey team, just returning this uh, Donna Zuckerberg piece here. Uh, She also writes, these are, these are her ideas for people going forward to deal with the alt rights uh, co-option of the classics because Western civilization and the Western miracle somehow is now akin to white nationalism. It's just insane. I don't even know what that, I mean, she's just gone off the deep end here, but she writes in your scholarship, focus on the parts of antiquity that aren't elite white men. Uh, and, of course, read and cite the work of scholars who write about race, gender, and class in the ancient world. Yeah, I mean, there was slavery in ancient Greece. It wasn't based on race. It was just slavery, which has existed for thousands of years in the world and uh, is talked about in America only in the context of American slavery. Forget We forget about Islamic slavery, and we forget about slavery in the ancient world. And Anyway, um, but I just think this is fascinating. It's a focus on the parts of antiquity that aren't elite white men. Okay, I mean, we're talking about the ancient world, you know, what where are we talking about here? Uh, we're not talking about we're we talking about Greece and Rome, I don't know, not a lot of not white men come to mind in terms of what I said, leadership, military, I maybe mean, it's just these were oppressive societies in their own ways. Anyway, Moving right along, I just think that's fascinating that this is now, that even the classics have been politicized to this extent, that you have a PhD talking about the manosphere and the, and how the alt-right is trying to take over the study of Western civilization. Nothing is, nothing is sacred, nothing is safe anymore, my friends. Uh, hat tip to Mike, another list of that he sent me of the most important books to all of humanity, the Bible, the Koran, the Communist Manifesto, the Republic, Wealth of Nations, Origin of Species, Relativity, Albert Einstein, and A Brief History of Time. Again, with the exception of the first two on that list, um, and very few people have read both, I think, of those two, but how many people have actually read The Communist Manifesto, Plato's Republic, Adam Smith's Wealth, Na- Wealth of Nations, Darwin's Origin of Species, Einstein's Relativity? I know they've had a huge impact, but it's interesting to me that, I mean, let's be honest with ourselves, for a minute. how many of us have actually read it? I'm not going to lie, I haven't read a bunch of them. I definitely read The Republic, The Communist Manifesto, Um, Haven't read uh, Relativity And haven't read um, A Brief History of Time Haven't even read Adam Smith Shields high!
0: The Buck Sexton Show Only on the Blaze Radio Network